Let's read this to, uh, and you follow along. And it happened, Acts 19, verse 1, I'm reading from the ESV, and it happened that while Apollos, and he was uh, somebody back in chapter 18, was at Corinth, that's where Paul's coming from, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a, there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. That's what John, the Baptist, uh, taught. On hearing this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So what you see here is you see these, um, these disciples of John the Baptist, and here they are in Ephesus. Now, this is, um, depending on your study Bible and notes or whatever, here's kind of the little interpretive uh, challenge that sometimes we have. As far as determining, are these disciples, they're called disciples of John, are they individuals who are genuinely saved believers who have not yet come and, and, and had their sins forgiven and trusted in faith in Christ? Or are they believers like Apollos was back in chapter 18, and they just haven't been updated in what God was doing? Now, here, here's the rub. Here's the challenge, because uh, if you come at it from, well, they're not believers. They haven't come to faith in Christ uh, and so they, they receive Jesus, and then they follow in baptism and receive the Holy Spirit, et cetera, as part of that salvation experience. If you come from more of a Baptistic, uh, and I know this is overly general, uh, that, that might be more of the approach. If you are perhaps looking at this more in a charismatic Pentecostal sense, uh, and I wouldn't limit it to those, those two, so don't, don't get hung up on those terms, you might say, no, it says that they are disciples. Disciples mean followers. Uh, Paul acknowledges that John taught them that it's faith in Christ. Uh, we know that they, we can assume if John was true of what the Bible tells. Remember when he first saw Jesus coming on the scene and he said what? There's the Lamb of God that does what? Takes away the sins of the world. So if they were disciples of John, I think it would be fair that they had a correct understanding, limited, but they had a correct understanding of who Jesus was. This is where I kind of lean into, I believe that they were believers, that they were Christians, because of what Paul asked them. He said, uh, he asked them this question. He said, uh, let's go back to, I put my paper away here. He says, uh, did you read the, did, verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Literally, the Greek is, when you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And so why would he ask that question? That would be an odd question to ask somebody who wasn't a Christian, right? Fair? That'd be an odd question. Usually, you would ask them, do you know Jesus is the Messiah? Do you know he's the Lamb of God to take away? I mean, that would be more of a... So, Methinks 
that the, that the understanding is that he's accepting them like Apollos. Remember again, Apollos, back in chapter 18, was a believer. He just needed updating. These guys just need updating on what's been going on. They, they've, they, they, they've not been on Facebook in a while. They don't know what's been happening, all right? That was a joke, all right? Some of you breathe, okay? And you know what happens when you're quiet, all right? Just warning you. Uh, I, I go longer, all right? Thank you, thank you, Dom. But, but don't, let's, don't, let's don't get hung up in that. So I'm going to approach this. I, I believe that they were believers. And now the, the, the rub sometimes is that folks will use or interpret this to, to, uh, as kind of a, one of, the, of other texts and saying that, see, that the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that is extra beyond salvation. And so they give this as an example here. Uh, so I'm, I'm not quite sure I'm, I'm quite saying that, but what I'm saying is that in this unique situation, and that's where sometimes we have to look at Scripture, and rather than trying to say, well, this is a definitive pattern that, that the Bible is teaching that is, that is the same in every situation. So let's just go back with me. The first outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we find there is in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, right? All right, the Holy Spirit comes upon believers, and uh, there's that dramatic outpouring, and they speak in multiple languages and dialects, because remember, what do they say? How is it that these foreigners can hear and understand? All right, so they're speaking in, in tongues, but the word is dialects and languages. And so then we find a very similar situation where Pentecost, if we can kind of put that in quotations, we see a, 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 a Samaritan Pentecost in Acts chapter 8. And we see again, not, we see now the, gospel, the, the Holy Spirit being, if I could use this word, poured out among these Samaritans, and they, they give evidence by speaking in tongues, and, and it's a visible sign and evidence of being, of being filled and, and accepted and brought in by this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 10, we see Peter going to this Gentile's house by the name of Cornelius. Remember, that's the house where Cornelius has got uh, uh, pork ribs and shellfish and all that good stuff that where I shouldn't have mentioned because some of you now are going to start thinking about food. And uh, so just wipe that over your head. And so God gives him that vision where he has that vision. Remember, he's standing up on the roof, and God gives him that vision and shows all those unclean animals. And, and then because, because, you know, Cornelius, he's not a Jew. He doesn't have to worry about all those dietary laws. And, uh, and so God brings the Holy Spirit into Cornelius' household, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And they all give evidence of this infilling by, by this manifestation of tongues and prophesying there. And then, of course, we come to Ephesus in chapter 19. So if we're going to say this is a pattern that we should say this is the, always the way that it works, we kind of got a problem. Here's the problem. I just mentioned in chapter 10 about Cornelius, right? All the other examples, there was this infilling of the Holy Spirit as a, um, after they were baptized, water baptized. Cornelius, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and there was this infilling and speaking in tongues, and they hadn't been water baptized. So he kind of throws the pattern off, all right? So that kind of throws things off. The other is that after this example in chapter 19, where we see the Holy Spirit coming upon these followers of John, we just don't see any more of this, right? 
And we don't see it really referenced in any of the epistles. Again, don't miss it. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, Galatians talks about walking in the Spirit, you know, being filled with it. You know, it's not talking about a continuous dynamic of accessing and, and, and wanting more of the Spirit of God. We're saying if this is a, a pattern that when a person is saved, then there's the second act that comes where they have to, be, where they have to receive a fullness of the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me give you my thought here. I am daily wanting more of the Holy Spirit. I'm not relying on some historical thing that happened in my life. I want more of the Holy Spirit every day of my life. I want to continually be filled, right? I'm not just going to bank it on a, a one or two experience. I want all of God. I need a filling. I need, you know, what is the, we say about great is thy faithfulness, uh, you know, about the mercies of God that, that, that Jeremiah wrote about in Lamentations. They're new every morning. I need access to the mercies and grace and Spirit of God every day because I exhaust it by about noontime of the day before. You can ask my wife about that. So, what are we to do with this? Let's just kind of put all those little particulars aside and just focus on this, is that in this historical event, this real event, what I want you not to miss, to get lost in the weeds and trying to figure out all the little pieces there, is to recognize that God showed up and he did something dynamic into these individuals. Notice the fact that they didn't say, well, wait a minute, um, we know all there is to know because John was a great teacher, so we're not interested in any more of that. And there's some Christians that are like that. They just kind of said, you know what? I know everything there is to know. I'm, I'm satisfied and I'm happy, and I really don't want any more. And guess what? God probably won't give you any more. He probably won't because you just, you're not interested. You're full. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? That's the beginning of the of the uh, charter of the kingdom of God, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are bankrupt, one translation says. One of those who are bankrupt of self. As long as we are full of self, and I'm talking about even as a church, that we've got everything running like a fine-tuned machine, if we just are full and we're just running, the trains run on time, figuratively speaking, and we're just doing all the things right, but we're not doing right things, then we're probably not going to be a church that really moves beyond other than, I'm not talking about church growth. Some people tie this in to just numbers and crowds. Uh, you know, when we, uh, we talked about the Welsh revival, don't put that up yet, but remember last week, and if you weren't here last week, you can listen to last week's message on the website, and the, a lot of what I read is an attachment, a PDF on there of the Welsh revival in Wales uh, that uh, we kind of talked about last week. And you know where that began? It began with just uh, some people, one man primarily that God used who just began to pray for 13 years. Evan Roberts just prayed for 13 years. And then in a prayer meeting, a young woman stood up and just said, I love Jesus with all my heart. That's all she said. And the Spirit of God just, and from that, tens of thousands of people over the years came to faith in Christ and, and missions and evangelism and all those things were birthed in a dramatic visitation of God. Where did it begin? It began with somebody that was hungry for more of God. 
I think these disciples, they were, thankfully, they weren't content with just what John told them. Here Paul came along, and they're like, hey, we want in on that. We haven't heard. When it says that, we even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. I don't think they were saying we never even heard about the Holy Spirit because the Old Testament talks about the Spirit. I think what they were saying is we haven't heard of what, was, what, what has been happening or what has happened, really, because the day of Pentecost was where things were, were set forward on steroids, spiritually speaking of the Holy Spirit now that was coming upon believers in this dynamic way, they said, we have any, we're not aware of what the Spirit of God is doing in the infilling. We're, we're not even aware of that. That's what they were saying. We're not saying, well, we've never even heard of a Holy Spirit. The last time, and it says Paul laid hands on them, it's the last time that we see this, this type of thing in the book of Acts. What are sign gifts for? They were for the authentication of the ministry of the apostle. They were for, to authenticate the working and filling of the Holy Spirit. The signs are not the destination. When you go down the road and you see a sign that says Winter Haven, you don't stop at the sign on I-4 and say, well, I guess we're here. Here's the sign. A sign is just pointing you. But see, we get hung up. In the signs, we get hung up there instead of what are these things intended to do? They are intended to reveal to these people they don't have all the apparatuses and media and spiritual things that we have, but they are to, to show them that this man by the name of Paul, that what he's telling them, that, the, that when he laid hands upon them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and just like the other three occasions, where the Holy Spirit manifested in this unusual, dramatic way with the speaking of tongues and prophesying, that it connected them and gave them a visible manifestation that this is not only true, but this is God's messenger, and we are now connected because we've experienced the same thing that these other brothers that we haven't even heard about, what they've connected, what they've experienced. We are now part of this Work that God is doing. Revival, and don't miss this, because this really goes back to the point that revival, a spiritual awakening, probably won't be like this, but it will always bring a manifestation of the sovereign presence of God among his followers. That where there was not a corporate interest in worship, prayer, Scripture, sharing the gospel, where we were watching the clock, do we make sure we get out of here at a certain time? People don't care about the clock. They just, they just, they just want everything God would have them to give. And if that means lingering and staying and and worshiping God, and, and again, you can't program that. You can't manufacture that. And if any of you are familiar with things that have gone on in the name of revival, you'll, you'll know that the minute they tried to package this thing and market this thing, Mike, I joked about once they got the cups and the mugs and the T-shirts and the bumper stickers and the CD labels around this label of, under whatever the revival you could just see the thing was just, it was gone. 
Because when man starts to touch it and manipulate it and use it for their own purpose, whatever, it'll just go in shambles. Reminds me of like, remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John are up there with Jesus? And they saw Moses and Elijah. By the way, Peter was kind of dozing, and he, he missed kind of that. And then when Jesus woke him up, he wanted to do what? His first instinct was, let's build three monuments, three memorials, one to Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. That's what we want to do. We want to build these monuments and memorials. And what happens in the church is it goes from being a movement to becoming a monument. That's what happens in church history. It goes from being a dynamic movement of the Holy Spirit, and then we gather around and celebrate the monument of what happened back in the day. And we think, boy, wouldn't it have been something to live back then? Let me tell you, this is the greatest generation to be alive. You know why? Because it's the greatest, it's the generation you're sitting here living and breathing and your heart's beating, right? If you were back in that generation, you wouldn't be here. We'd be gathered at your monument across the street. You wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be alive. By the way, there's a cemetery across the street, in case you want to know what I wasn't referring to a church or anything. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit, keep in mind of John 3.8. Remember this? When we start to want to say, well, this is the way it always has to be. This is the way it always has to work. Keep in mind what Jesus said to Nicodemus, and he was talking about the Holy Spirit. He said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you have heard its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is. So it is. Liking it to the wind and can't necessarily predict it and and always determine where it's coming from, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. John Wesley, remember John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, certainly has departed greatly from his day. Lived from 1703 to 1791. John Wesley said this in a meeting that he preached at. He said, people dropped on every side as thunderstruck. He was seeing, talking about this revival. He said, people dropped on every side as thunderstruck as they fell to the ground, others with convulsions exceeding all description, and many reported seeing visions. Some shook like a cloth in the wind. Others roared and screamed or fell down with involuntary laughter. Kind of crazy, isn't it? But I love what he says. He says, about 60 of our brethren until 3 in the morning, the power of God, this is in his journal from January 1, 1739, about 60 of our brethren until 3 in the morning, the power of God came mightily on us insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy and many just fell to the ground. They were, they were overcome. And then he prayed this. And this may be a tough prayer to pray for some of you. He prayed this prayer. Lord, send us revival with what, without its defects. Lord, send us revival without its defects. But if that is not possible, send revival, defects and all. Now, we've been talking about these unusual manifestations, gifts, and things that we see here and try to put those together. But let me suggest to you, that the real, I shouldn't say real, but the manifestation of the Holy Spirit that has the ongoing, lasting 
evidence was not tongues. It was not prophesying. Whatever, whatever that speaking forth the word is what prophecy means. Look at verse 10. It should be on the screen. As Paul is in Ephesus, and he eventually goes into the synagogue... And it said, this continued for two years. He was in Ephesus for two years so that all the residents of Asia, that's Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, they heard the word of the Lord. Look at that, verse 20. should be on the screen too. That the word of the Lord, all part of what's happening there in just half of this chapter, half of Ephesians, that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see what happens when human beings get around and try to monkey up revivals or great awakenings. You know one of the things that often suffers is the word of God. Because instead of allowing the manifestations and activity and the and the, and, the, and the things that the Spirit of God is doing, the Holy Spirit will never work out of step or out of tandem with Scripture. That's our guide. Your dream, your experience, your vision of Jesus on a tortilla or on somebody's window or all these weird things that go on, let me tell you something. It's entertaining and blah, 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 but it, it will not change anybody's life. It really doesn't have any authority. You know what has authority is the Word of God. That's our guide. And when we start to build actions and, and, and doctrine even around manifestations and things, instead of saying, well, let's bring it back to Scripture, let's reel it in, and making sure that things are line upon line, precept upon precept, Scripture says. But what was the dramatic sign, let me even say it this way, what was the fruit that really we see here? It was that the Word of God increased and prevailed mightily. That's what will change people's lives. Not necessarily your experience. Now, don't confuse emotionalism with emotion. That young woman had emotion of what God did in her life. Sometimes we're afraid of, in our, you know, in our Western cult, we're afraid of emotion, you know, until we see the Bucks win the Super Bowl, and then all of a sudden we become Pentecostals overnight, right? Screaming, yelling, waving, doing whatever, right? Don't be afraid of emotion. But emotionalism, that's something that we, we have to say. That's just, sometimes that's the flesh, you know. We have to, we have to kind of watch that, be careful of that. But it's the word of, I believe that's the key that we don't want to get lost in the weeds here is that the Word of God, we're talking about revival. One of the things you always see true about the Word of, uh, of a revival and spiritual awakening is an increase in the Word of God. You see an increase in the magnification of the name of God in the preaching of the Word, and that the Word of God is what is true and lasting. The Word of God and the Spirit always working together. And there's such dynamic spiritual activity going on here in Ephesus. Look at verse 11 and 12. And it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of who? 
You see, one of the things that I didn't mention that back in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19 of those events of the Holy Spirit coming upon that in that way and the, the manifestation of the tongues and gifts there, one common link you have in all those situations is you have the presence of an apostle. You have the presence of an apostle there. Because part of it, as I alluded to it with the folks uh, in early part of chapter 19, that this spirit manifestation authenticated, not only were they now a part of the bigger work that God was doing since Pentecost, but also that this messenger God sent them was a genuine apostle when he laid hands on them. He didn't have to lay hands on them. He didn't have any magic or incantation. But he laid hands on them to signify and solidify that he was an apostle sent by God. Apostles had unique gifts and unique roles. And I know there's people running around saying they're apostles. There are no apostles. There are 12 stones in the New Jerusalem for the 12 tribes and for the 12 apostles. Okay? That's not, they're not like adding stones to that, okay? It's kind of like we're our church and the saints, Ephesians says, Ephesians, interestingly, Paul said this, is built on the foundation of the apostles. Hello? All right? So don't miss that if you want to start boxing and making that. This is, a, this is something that always operates the same way at the same time. Ephesians 2 was that foundation of the apostles' reference here. But there's something really kind of odd that happens here. Look at verse 12. It says that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, and I know some of you are wondering about this, verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin, Paul, were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. I know you've seen guys on TV or gals, you know, for your gift, your seed gift of $99.99. I'll send you this prayer cloth that's been dipped in the Jordan River. And if you will lay that on your head or your TV, you'll be guaranteed healing. I grew up in a tradition where they had prayer cloths. And it was from this one verse, only time, that's ever mentioned or alluded to. Now, let me understand what, what I have no problem. If I were to give you this, let's say I was going to give you this special paper clip, and this was my gift to you, and that you put that paper clip on your desk, and every time you saw it, you, you were reminded to pray for me. And it just kind of provoked a memory. It provoked a sense of, that Tim, he's a great guy. <laughs> oh, good. Now, now we're going to have to all have an altar call. Um, I have no problem with that. But you know what happens? It's just human nature. You pray for one of these prayer calls. Intention, well-meaning, certainly. If you, But you know what happened? Is we, it's just human nature. We attach some kind of religious significance. That's why, honestly, I hesitated getting this. Because if you need that to provoke you to worship God, we'll take it down. We'll take it down. 
It is just, again, an aesthetic visual reminder. That's, it has no attachment. So what do we do with these prayer cloths? Here's the thing. When you study the Bible, you've got to always operate in this principle. There are things in the Bible that are descriptive, and then there are things in the Bible that are prescriptive. There are things that are described. Judas went and hung himself. That's describing a real event. That's not prescribing you go and do likewise. Hello? Hello? Can we at least agree to that? We're anti-hanging, all right? So when you read things in Scripture, Scripture's written, especially in narrative historical, there's written, these are things that have happened. This, remember where this is happening. This is happening in Ephesus where, like children in a sense, they have yet to come into a full measure of understanding the truth. And so just in a natural human uh, response... Remember, they, they are in an environment where there's superstition and there's all sorts of, they're growing up around magic and the occult. And just maybe in their innocent God, listen, God didn't attach any healing power. It just said that they went and did this. It didn't necessarily say that these claws necessarily had any real healing virtue necessarily in them. He was just, I think it's just illustrative as saying there is such a, an outpouring of God's Spirit People are just, this is, again, this is one of those messy things. All right, shut it down. They're, they're, they're giving out prayer calls. Let's shut this revival down. We need to, get, we need to do a two-week series on why we do not have the doctrine of prayer calls. Let's just shut this revival down. No, Holy Spirit just said, you know what, like children. Okay, they were just, it just, it's just describing something that was happening. It's not prescribing they were to go out and, and start having prayer claws and prayer ministries and those th- type of things. But some people do that. That's why, again, you can't just, you take one scripture and you start going around and doing that kind of thing. It just illustrates that God was doing some dramatic stuff in Ephesus. Let's wind this down with this, Sherry. The greatest miracle God was doing, greatest manifestation... And sometimes we read these things and we see prayer, all these things, tongues, prayer calls, or whatever, and we, get, we, miss, we miss the point. The miracles that were taking place, the, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit was not only the advancement of the Word and the cause of Christ, but it was that lives that were alienated and disconnected to knowing who Jesus is, now their lives were being changed by the power of the gospel. People that were in areas that were in the natural were not part of the old covenant. Now the gospel under the new covenant is going forth to the ends of the earth. And people were giving their lives to Jesus Christ at hearing about who this Messiah was.